you this morning. I ask that you take them now and turn to Genesis chapter 12. As we continue in our series, we started three weeks ago, entitled The Kingdom of God. This morning, we're going to attempt to cover quite a a bit of uh, content. Uh, While we'll not read all the text, uh, I gave the the scripture reference to this morning, Genesis 12. Uh, More specifically, we'll be reading initially Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, But the content of the message this morning covers the entirety of of the text from Genesis 12 through the end of Deuteronomy. And so we're going to try to to wrap our minds around this morning uh, what God was doing, what was unfolding in the midst of all that, that detailed story that we read about throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so this morning our message title is The Kingdom Communicated. Now, how many of you like rules? That's what I thought. How many of you like rules? Well, we're going to be hesitant, right? What's the right answer? Is it yes, no? Uh, In our experiences throughout life, we come to to view rules as, as really both a blessing and a curse. Amen? I got to get you guys with me this morning. When, when the rules that, that we come in contact with serve us and our wants and our needs, we are extremely grateful, aren't we not? We're, we're thankful for the rules. I mean, when, when our team's losing and the other team breaks the rules, we're like, you better nail them. Get them for the rules and we're thankful for those rules. But... When those very same rules began to press in on us and and create a difficulty for us, whatever the circumstance might be, we tend to despise the rules and and to look for ways around them. I think most of us, if pressed, would admit to the need of law and order, but we recognize, along with that, uh, because of our experience, the overabundance of rules and regulations in, in almost every aspect of our culture. And I think that's often what we respond to, the, the, the compiling of, of laws and rules and expectations upon us. Now, it shouldn't be all that surprising to any of us uh, that people often despise the rules and seek to push the boundaries a little further than they currently are without getting into to too much trouble, Right? And we push those boundaries as long as the consequences aren't severe. Because the reality is, every single one of us are guilty of doing that very thing. How many of you have pushed the boundaries of the law, of the rules? How many of you have done that? Wow. Some of you haven't? I'm pretty impressed. Liars. You just pushed the boundaries of what the definition of a lie is. I mean, if you've ever exceeded the speed limit... Roll through a stop sign or anything like that. You're, you're pushing that boundary thinking, you know, the consequences won't be that bad or I can get away with it. Matt's guilty. I see it on your face. Anyone who has been a parent for any time understands this reality time and time again. You've learned it because of your experience. And you've, you've learned that it is, the, it is common to the will of all people from, from birth to death. Now, we don't like to think about the innocent children, right? The little babies. But from birth to death, 
This is the, the, the learned experience. This is the common will of all people to push those rules. From the very early age, from the moment they're born, children seek to push the boundaries at every turn. They, they challenge you. They challenge the rules that you try to set. Right? You try to set the bad time, right? And they just go to bed, right? You decide when it's nap time and they just go to sleep, right? You tell them what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do when they're playing in the yard. And that's exactly the way things go. And then you wake up. And when they continue to do those very things that they so commonly do for an extended period of time, we, 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 we term them or define them as stubborn or maybe even at some point rebellious children. This is the common reality for all people. This is something that is born within the heart of man. Uh, from, the, from the very point of conception, the Bible teaches us that this is our inherent will to push the line. Now, many of us, and I must include myself, we utilize this, this truth, this commonality of rebellion and stubbornness in our kids to make us feel better, don't we? When our kids are, are, are pushing the lines and they're being stubborn and they're, and they're obstinate, you know, we love it when we hear, you know, that's, that's the way kids are. You know, it's normal. And that's somehow supposed to make us feel a little better. And, and I'm guilty, you know. Face it, mom and dad. You know, when your kid's bad and you see somebody else's kid being bad, don't you feel better? Yeah, you do. And, and that makes us feel like, okay, my kid's not so bad after all. This is to ease our conscience. But the reality is that this commonality is true because of the consequences of the fall that extended to every human being. The fall that we read about last week. Our desire to operate outside the box is a result of sin's entrance into this world and nothing else. It's not something that should ease our conscience. And trust me, when I say that, I preach to myself. It should be something that should wake us up to a reality that is, that is significant, that is deep, that is horrifying in this world. Now, if you recall, last week we considered how the effects of the fall of God's original kingdom on earth radically altered the existence of God's people. Their desire to determine what was right for them and what was not so right for them was, in fact, an act of rebellion against God's perfect provision for them. And God's perfect provision, however, was only guaranteed to them so long as they willingly submitted to God as the sovereign over all things. That was part of the equation. He was, of course, and still is in this very day, sovereign over all, whether that truth is acknowledged by somebody or not. His kingdom on earth, however, requires willful submission to his rule and authority by his people. And why not? Well, why shouldn't it be that way? I mean, this is the creator of all things. He, 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 he created everything and knows perfectly what is best and how to best provide for his creation in order that all of us might experience real and satisfying life, that which we long for. And that's exactly how he intended it from the very beginning. Our present struggle that you and I face day in and day out with rules or authority or, or law is the ongoing effect of sin in this world. We are born inherently opposed to being ruled by anyone other than me. Think about it. 
We were opposed to being ruled by anyone other than ourselves. And we continue in this very moment, we continue to think in some way that we know best for us. But that too is a deceptive result of sin's entrance in this world. Now, I understand full well that our experience uh, with this concept of rule and authority and law uh, brings us to the reality that not everyone who is in a position of authority rules without fault. Or that everyone who, who, who holds some kind of authoritative position is completely just. I get that. But understand this, that even if those who are in authority who do rule unjustly or who are sinners themselves, even if you take that out of the equation and we had authority that ruled perfectly, we would still find ourselves in the very same position, opposed to being ruled by another. Our stubbornness and our rebellion is not the result of unjust or crooked leaders. It's not their fault. It is the result of a sinful heart. I'm the problem. When I, when I face that struggle well, the injustice, while there may be fault on the other, the reality is, ultimately, I'm the problem. It's, it's my heart that's sick. It's my heart that's, that, that has a sin desire. So that being the case, remove all circumstances. The bad stuff in life, all the tragedies, all the difficulties, all the, the struggle, remove them all. And our hearts remain just as stubborn and rebellious. In the fall, we learned that mankind, di- mankind died. Both spiritually separated from God and ultimately led to physical death. All humanity was separated from their creator as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. And, and, and as a result of that sin, humankind was, was free. We were free to make our own rules to an extent. But because of the spiritual death that came... Adam and Eve, along with all their descendants, were no longer free to serve their creator. Their sinful hearts would not allow it. Humanity cannot have it both ways. You and I cannot have it both ways. Live as God's people, but make the rules for ourselves. That's what we want, isn't it? We we want all the good that comes with the God stuff. But we still want to control our own lives. And the reality was the same for Adam and Eve and everyone thereafter. They could either continue to live for themselves and determine right and wrong for themselves. Or, if by some miracle it were possible, they could submit to God's rule and once again enjoy His blessing living as His people. The barrier to the better option living as God's people and enjoying His blessing, the barrier is sin. You see, because humanity was now and is now enslaved to sin. Think about that phrase, a slave to sin. Think about what that means. We can say it, but I I don't think we, we grasp the reality of being a slave to sin. We think we're slaves to sin, but yet we rule our own lives. But the reality is, we don't. We're enslaved to sin. Sin is the new master. And he holds all mankind from birth in this world captive 
to its power. And unless something or someone is capable of, of setting humankind free from sin's bondage, humankind could not submit to God's sovereign rule. In light of the tragic condition that is illustrated for us extensively in Genesis 3 through 11, which we looked at last week, God did not give up on his creation. Even though they continually and aggressively sought to continue to seek to live their lives by their own rules rather than submitting to the sovereign rule of of a perfect, holy, and loving creator, God purposed, in the midst of all that, God purposed that his kingdom would stand. It would not fall prey to the sinful, rebellious hearts of his creation. God's people would live in God's place and enjoy God's rule and his blessing. God said so. And this gracious truth was revealed from the very beginning. From the moment sin entered the world, we see uh, the glimmer of hope in the midst of all that. From the moment Adam and Eve fell slaves to sin, God graciously covered their nakedness in an act of grace that was totally undeserved. A scandalous grace to cover over their nakedness. And then later we read last week that in spite of the, 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 the just intense wickedness of the world, God chose to express grace to one man and his family, Noah. And then the final narrative of that section of scripture, of that plight that from sin in Genesis 3 through 11, it provides us with a genealogy that terminates with a man named Abram, whom we usually understand as Abraham. Abraham, uh, like the rest of his kind, get this, he was a pagan living in bondage to sin. You see, we, we, we often miss that reality. He was living in a pagan culture in bondage to sin like the rest of mankind. But God purposed to do something amazing with and through this man. God's kingdom would persist even if God had to do something miraculous. It is for this purpose that God pursued Abraham. That his kingdom and his promises would stand. And through Abraham, God would create a people who would would be his. They would belong to him. And he would provide for them a particular place where he would serve as their God, continually blessing them so long as they would live for him and his glory. And so begins the story of God's reestablishing the kingdom that we saw decimated last week because of sin's entrance into the world. And we discovered that Genesis 12 through the, the end of the book of Deuteronomy records God's calling forth a people, leading them to a place prepared by him and promising them his blessings as they live for him in this world. Let's read together Genesis 12, the first three verses only, and then we'll unpack that a little bit using the revelation that God has provided for us. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Father, we pray in these moments... That you would give us uh, an an ability to understand by the power of your spirit the the big picture of the unfolding of your promises that we read about in 
Genesis through Deuteronomy this morning. And, and that it would serve as a catalyst for us to, to better live uh, for your glory as people of your kingdom here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This, this story that we read about and all the following stories. I mean, the multitude of stories with all the data that sometimes is so difficult for us to parse and figure out ultimately really isn't all that difficult. The story of Abraham, Abraham's calling continues this historic story that Moses originally conveyed to Israel who were standing on the banks of the Jordan River. If you recall, we've re- referenced that each week. This is our context. This is Moses unpacking this story for them uh, as they are looking out across that land that they had been aiming for for so long, for generations. Now, this story had likely been conveyed to them in some fashion, in some form or another by their parents and, and to their parents by their parents and, and continuing back or stemming back all the way to probably the very beginning or back to the actual events themselves. Now, however, for the first time, they were hearing this story, the whole story, from the beginning up to where they were standing in that point, they were hearing it from a unique point of view. While they'd heard it, again, probably before, from their parents, grandparents, now they were hearing it from a mouthpiece. A mouthpiece named Moses. But God was the author. He was the one telling the story. And so for the first time, they were hearing God's version of his dealings with his people from the beginning of the world. I mean, how cool is that? To hear it from God himself by his mouthpiece. I might add that isn't that exactly the privilege that you and I have every time we gather, as we look to God's word and allow God's messengers to speak forth that word? It is God's word. Genesis 12 introduces us to a new character. We've already mentioned his name, but initially we know nothing about this guy. All we know is that he was the son of Terah. We don't even know who that is. And he had a wife named Sarai, or later named Sarah, and a nephew named Lot. That's the extent of our knowledge about this man. And that he, he lived, he grew up originally in, in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And was presently living in a city called Haran. That's all we know. That's all the, the background we get about this, this, this character. So when we come upon him initially, it might not seem all that, that glamorous. We don't know... At this point of Abram's present knowledge of God. Or if he even had any. Maybe a little. But we don't know to what extent he understood who God was. We often assume that since God called him. That that Abraham must have been a worshiper of God. I mean because after all God spoke to him. But the text does not tell us that. That's our mere assumption. In fact, the context leading up to this point reveals that the situation was most likely the opposite. Abraham was a pagan or from a pagan land and was likely well versed in in the pagan gods and very possibly a full out pagan himself. We are merely told at this point that God spoke to Abraham. And the point of the story up to this point, up to this place is that God has created and provided. This is what God does. This is what he's been doing. But man, on the other hand, has been busy doing one thing, rebelling. Rebelling. 
and rebelling. This is our story. There is nothing in the story that indicates that we are to place any merit of Abraham's call on Abraham. It was God and God alone who was carrying out his purposes in spite, in spite of the sinfulness of mankind. Sin had radically changed everything. But God was still sovereign over all. And as the sovereign Lord, God was unpacking his timeless plan to build his kingdom through the seemingly mundane experiences, the mundane circumstances of life throughout the history of the world. That's what we're reading in our Bibles. And now in an obscure place and to an obscure individual, God communicated very directly his kingdom plan. And when God spoke, he communicated three distinct promises to Abram. First, a place. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And second, a people. And I will make of you a great nation. And th- thirdly, a blessing. And I will bless you and make your name great. This was very direct revelation that we read about in Genesis 12. But now, as we briefly unpack these, these ideas, uh, rather than taking these three promises in the order that they're communicated, a place, a people, and a blessing, we're going to take them in the order of the definition that I provided you for the last three weeks of the kingdom of God. God's people dwelling in God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing. So we're going to take them in, in those, uh, uh, that order because... Ultimately, while it's a little bit intermingled, ultimately that's the order in which we see God's promises unpacked through the corpus of Scripture. A people, a place, and then his rule and blessing. So first, let's look at God's people. From the moment that God calls Abraham, God begins unveiling, unpacking these promises. Though, unfortunately, not in a single moment, you know... Imagine if that were you. You want, you want to hear what God says? And, hey, great, a promise. Now do it right now. Do it now. We don't like the waiting part. And what might have been an expectation of instant gratification on Abraham's part proved to be a promise that would unfold over a great deal of time. In fact, while you and I have been given a great deal of revelation an ability to understand God's unfolding plan by the power of His Spirit, we too are still waiting its ultimate fulfillment. God is still unpacking this promise today. What God promised Abraham in the beginning is the very same promise which you and I have the amazing privilege of experiencing in what the Bible terms as the last days. God's promise to Abraham is the promise that you and I experience as believers. And in order for God's kingdom to once again rise on the earth, it required that there be a people. Without a people, there is no kingdom. God made it clear in his promise to Abraham that not only would there be a people, but that this people would be numerous enough to consider them an entire nation. In fact, if you read on through the unfolding revelation, Genesis 15 tells us that that the descendants of Abraham, God promises, would be as numerous as the the stars in the heavens and the sands on the sea. I've never ultimately tried to count either one of them, but the point's clear. The nation of people, this nation of people would arise from Abraham himself. This was God's promise to Abraham. God promised that he would make a great nation of him. 
Now, the rest of the story of Genesis is the revelation of this promise, of this particular promise. God calling forth for himself a people. That's the point of the book of Genesis. Intermingled along the way in the midst of of that unveiling of the promise are, are numerous roadblocks and numerous struggles. This is where we get all these stories that we read that are that are a part of this bigger picture. And these roadblocks and these struggles seem to seek to undo the very plans of God to establish his kingdom once again. For example, in Genesis 12, if we continue reading, we would find uh, a story that tells us about Abraham lying about Sarah being his sister. And as a result, Abimelech takes her into his harem, which is a challenge to the very promise that God has made. But if we keep reading, we find that God overcame. Even in the midst of sin, it didn't thwart the plan of God. Genesis 13 reveals the rivalry that arises between Lot and Abraham's people. And, and this, this serves as a challenge to the very promise that God has made to Abraham. Lot takes the, the better land. Uh, this is a land that, that, that promised survival of his people. And Abraham took what was left over. But yet God overcame The story of Abraham and Hagar's child, Ishmael, serves to challenge the very promise of the seed that stems back to Genesis 3 that God made after the fall. Yet God overcame and provided an heir through a barren woman named Sarah, Abraham's wife. But then you go on to read Genesis 22 and you read that story where by God's own command, that promise is challenged because God says, sacrifice that seed, Isaac. But yet, as we read that story, we find that once again, God provides. He reveals his providing nature, character, by providing this substitution and his purpose to make a nation of Abraham and his descendants continues. And story after story seeks to reveal the inability of man under any circumstances to thwart the plan of God. And in spite of man's continual rebellion and lack of faith, God overcomes. That's the point of the stories that we read. They reveal to us that the unfolding plan of God cannot be altered. God purposed it. And it would come to pass just as he had promised. Unconditionally. In spite of you. In spite of me. In spite of sin. Just as Paul reminds us in Romans 9 verse 16. He says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. As God promised, Abraham had a son, Isaac. And Isaac receives the very same promise renewed that God had made to Abraham. He becomes the bearer of the promise. And he, like Abraham, faces many circumstances that seek to undo the very promises. Very many of them, very much like his dad. But then Isaac has a son, or two sons, but God appoints Jacob to be the promise bearer in as Isaac's and Abraham's descendants. God then gives Jacob, later known as Israel, 12 sons. Ten of Jacob's sons and two of his grandchildren are what comprise what we know today as the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Genesis ends. It ends with Jacob's family, not in God's place, right? But where? In Egypt. In Egypt, enjoying life, right? It's not a bad deal. And they moved to Egypt to survive. But nevertheless, they're not in the place that God had promised. 
And Abraham, while it was promised to him and his descendants, he never took possession of it except for the little down payment that he made. you remember what that was? He purchased a small tract of land within the promised land so that he could bury his wife. And that was, in a sense, that was a down payment on the promise that God had made. But he never possessed it. And so we find him at the end of Genesis in Egypt, outside of God's place, enjoying life as it is. And they're, they're, they've grown, but they're not much of a people, are they? The Bible tells us that they were 70 in number. But then we go on and we read in the first chapter of Exodus that the perspective changes quite suddenly, doesn't it? The original 70 who were dwelling in the land of Egypt, enjoying life, were now enslaved by a new ruler. Rather than enjoying life, they're now in bondage to these people who had for so long blessed them. And in spite of the oppression of slavery, God overcame once again. The 70, in the midst of oppression and slavery, became too numerous to count. So much so that Pharaoh feared and sought to put an end to their increase, lest they overtake them. But he did so without success. God had successfully marked out a people for himself. An entire nation called to be his. But God's God's kingdom was yet incomplete. There There was now a particular people, but they were not dwelling in God's appointed place, nor were they experiencing God's blessing. So that brings us to God's place. Because God was not yet finished While God's people would not occupy the land God had promised them for for some time, God was about to make this place, this his place of choosing, their primary pursuit. Had it not been for the stubbornness and rebelliousness of the heart of sinful man, as we're clearly uh, told throughout the the stories we read, God's people would have entered God's place in in a very short amount of time. God's God's calling of people to himself, however, didn't eradicate the effects of sin in this world. And so their hearts were still sinful. Their hearts still desired to to rule themselves and to oppose any other rule. And sin's reign would continue to seek the very undoing of God's kingdom in the same way that it had in the very beginning when the serpent approached Adam and Eve in God's kingdom and it fell. And so the, the Exodus story reveal, reveals God's purpose to deliver his people from a place of bondage to uh, the place of promise where his people could live with and for him, enjoying God's blessings. This is, this is the goal. This is where God's aiming them. But once again, it was the lack of trust in the word of God. Listen to that. It was the lack of trust in the word of God that, God's, that calls God's people to miss this destination, at least in delay. While there are numerous reminders throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that illustrate the sinful heart of man and the very graciousness of God, the story comes to a climax in Numbers chapter 13. You know the story. The story of the spies. They were told to go to the land. And the land was exactly what God had said it would be, right? They come back and they didn't deny that. So they they partially agreed with God's word. They said, yeah, it's just what he said, but... We know something God doesn't. We know better. If we go over there, things aren't going to go well for us. Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, declared, God said, take it. We need to take it. Everybody else said, oh, no. 
We're not idiots. We're smarter than that. Did you see those people? They're bigger than us. So they decided that they knew better what was best for them rather than listening to the word of God. Just like Adam and Eve. God's people chose to trust in themselves rather than to trust God and to take hold of the provision that he had promised to them. They chose to trust their intuition, their smarts, their abilities rather than to trust the promise of God. And it was for this reason that God's people found themselves on the banks of the Jordan River 40 years later listening to Moses recount everything that had led up to this point. They were finally about to enter God's place. They too had the chance to live as God's people in God's place, enjoying his blessings so long as they would trust in the word of God and not in themselves. So long as they would submit to God's rule rather than persist in deciding between good and evil for themselves. But although God had called a people to himself and they were on their way to God's place, there was yet one more piece to the puzzle. God's kingdom is a place of his rule and his blessing. Moses words it this way in Deuteronomy chapter 30 to that original audience. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring, bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your seed may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. In order for God's kingdom to exist, having God as a sovereign ruler or sovereign Lord assumes that there are rules. Here's where... You want to turn me off, okay? <laughs> it assumes that there are rules. And these rules serve as the medium of God's blessings to his people. So that brings us to our final point, God's rule and God's blessing. And it brings us to an age-old debate. We'll not try to flesh that debate out, but it is the debate of the law versus the gospel. You know what I'm talking about. When God delivered his people from bondage through the many wonders and signs in, in, in Egypt, he led them to a mountain in the wilderness. It, it was there that God's people proved themselves to be faithless as they fashioned a golden calf in order to worship as they had likely learned to do in Egypt. 
And during that worship service, while they were having a good time, and they were celebrating, and they were worshiping something, God was establishing the law for his people by placing that law on stone tablets for Moses to to deliver to them. This law served as boundaries for God's people to live as his people. God's law served to express his own character to his people and provide them with an understanding of how to live out their identity as God's people. And this law didn't make them God's people. It never has. It never will. God did that. God made them his people. But the law would would serve to reveal the very wickedness of their hearts and, and, and of the heart of all mankind that required more than mere rules and regulations in order to live in God's kingdom. And from that moment on, God's law would serve as the medium of his blessing to his people. It's exactly what Moses told them. Living for God's glory would prove to be a difficult task. And you can resonate with that. Their hearts, just like ours today, continued to seek to rule themselves. They and we do not want to submit to God's kingship in our lives. We struggle with that day in and day out. They and we continually seek to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves rather than simply trust the very word of God. The reality is that the heart of man is incapable of submitting to God's kingship. Paul reminds us of this truth in Romans 8 verse 7 when he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And God's law is his sovereign rulership over all. To assume that one can live for God and make their own rules is insanity. It's insane to think that we can do that. And in that sense, nothing has changed. They thought it then and we still think it today. We can either submit to God's word, trusting that it will bring about our greatest good, or we can live under our own rule, our own self-government. We cannot have it both ways, even though that is exactly what we want. Often today we quote verses like Romans 6.14. It says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We quote those verses like that, but we do so usually out of context. We want all the blessings without any of the rule stuff. Get, away, get rid of the law. Get rid of that idea. The context in a verse like that, in that verse, is not, is not being under law, but rather... And, Excuse me, is not being under law, but under grace, is as a reference to the curse of the law. In Christ, we are no longer subject to the curse of of the law because of the grace that we have found in Christ alone. But that doesn't eliminate God's law. Jesus himself said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He went on to say that, that the law would not pass away as long as heaven and earth stood. He then proceeded to take the law a step further by making it an issue of the heart rather than mere outward action. The point is this. The law of God represents the kingship of God in our lives. Our pursuit to be free from any sense of rule only continues to prove our desire to decide what's right and what's wrong for ourselves rather than trusting the word of God. It serves as the evidence that we are just like Adam and Eve. And we can say they had it the perfect way. And if we were in their shoes, we'd have never done what they did. But that's just not true. We're just like them. Their sin continues to reign. 
in the hearts of humankind. So do we somehow assume that when God's kingdom comes in all its fullness, when all things are done and we are living in that age to come, that we're going to get to decide right and wrong for ourselves? Do we assume that? That we're going to get to be free to do whatever we want? You know, the idea of heaven. Heaven's that place where it's just all fun. We get to do whatever we want to do without consequences. And if that's your view of heaven, then you slightly miss the point. The kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place, enjoying His rule and blessing. Because we willingly submit to His rule without question, without seeking to decide for ourselves what is right for us. We trust Him. And God's kingdom is a present reality even to this day. We, the church, are the kingdom of God here on earth. We do not experience the kingdom in all its fullness. We are awaiting the, that fullness, that consummation of the kingdom. But, but we are the presence of God's kingdom here in this world. Yet we, the church, continue to pursue our own rule. We want it our way. How we think best. Because we understand the culture. We understand the, the way humans think and work better than God does. Right? So we do it our way, the way that makes sense. We want to do it the way we think it ought to be done rather than trusting God's word. We allow our culture to deceive us and to compromise so that we look more like the kingdom of this world than we ever do the kingdom of God. And if we are God's people, that is, if you've been saved by God's amazing grace and you are truly a Christian, if you're God's people living in God's place and for now that place has been appointed the church, then we are supposed to enjoy his rule. You hear that? Enjoy his rule. Law does not save us or gain us any better standing with God. It never has and it never will. But the law, the law of God is a representation of God's rule over our hearts. And as God's people, we should desire God to rule us. We should desire God to tell us what to do. So that we could experience the fullness of life and real life and satisfying life. Now sure we struggle in this flesh and and we will so long as we live in this present age. But we never stop denying our worldly desires because we know God knows better. We never stop repenting of our, our sinful ways because we know that that only brings consequences. And it breaks the heart of God whom we love. And to add to that we have the Spirit of God that He has given us to lead us, to guide us into all truth. Listen to Paul's consideration of the law and the gospel in Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart apart from the law, sin lies dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold, understand. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do, do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. In my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And if you doubt the goodness of God's law, then take some time to read Psalm 119. It is, it is filled we reflection on the law of God. And it says things like, I delight in the law of good. It's like honey. That was the, the believer's perception of the law, of God's rule. And that is because uh, uh, that those who have experienced the amazing grace of God desire to live for God's glory, submitting to his rule in us and over us. And while this is a difficult thing to do, it isn't a bad thing to the one who truly desires to pursue God and his kingdom. God continues to call a people to himself from out of every tribe, nation, people, and tongue this very day. These are the fulfillment of the promise of God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 that we read in the first three verses. The seed of Abraham extends beyond the physical descendants of Abraham to the spiritual. The Bible teaches that Abraham's descendants are those who believe. And just like it was true for Abraham when the Bible tells us that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so it is true for anyone and everyone who will believe today. So do you want to experience the greatest, most satisfying life possible? It's only possible in Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Whether it's for the first time or whether it's continuing as a believer. And if you do so, you too will experience the grace of God that enables any and all who believe to love the Lordship of Christ in our lives. Everyone who believes becomes a part of God's people, dwelling in God's place and enjoying His rule and blessing. Our Father, we thank you this, this morning for your marvelous grace. We thank you that, Lord, your rulership over us is far greater than any other rule that we could ever experience. Father, we find it very difficult in the midst of our sinfulness, our sinful hearts and our sinful understanding to, to reconcile law and grace together. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through this word, that you would challenge us and that you would renew us, that you would draw us to you and teach us to love passionately your rule over our lives. Father, I pray you deal with your people this morning in a way that um, in a way that would most glorify you. I'm sure, I know there are differing needs here, uh, but Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us to live as your kingdom people here on this earth, making a difference 
in the world in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.